As we prepare for the reading and preaching of God's word, let's pray this prayer for illumination together. Father God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, open our minds to understand your word. Open our hearts to receive it with humility. Open our hearts to receive change and see the needs of others. Move our hands and feet to serve them in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our reading this afternoon is from Luke 10, verse 25 through 37. This is what Holy Scripture says. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's wisdom for us. Good afternoon. This parable of the Good Samaritan is arguably the most famous of Jesus' parables, probably because it's a moving, moving story about loving our fellow human beings. A man's been attacked, robbed, and left for dead. And he's rescued at great cost by a stranger. And what's intriguing about this parable is that it can be embraced and affirmed by anyone of any faith. Christian, Muslim, Jew, Hindu, Buddhist, and even those without any faith. We all should strive to be like the Samaritan. However, the universal appeal of this parable is only possible if you extract it from its larger context. If you read the parable alone and ignore the conversation between Jesus and the lawyer that takes place before and after the parable, you get this heartwarming story we can all agree on, but we miss the point of the parable. Jesus, in fact, wants us to love our neighbors like the Samaritan. However, we can only begin to do that if we first admit 
We can't love like the Samaritan. Or another way to say it is that if we focus primarily on being like the Samaritan, that will ultimately keep us from being like the Samaritan. So let me show you why. I'm going to lead you through this passage, verse by verse, starting with verse 25. There are a few things to note here. We're introduced to a lawyer who was an expert in the law of Moses. He was likely a very respected religious leader in his community. Outwardly, the lawyer, we're told, is showing Jesus respect by standing. It's sort of like we might raise our hand in the classroom. The man stands and waits for Jesus to address him. However, we're told that inwardly, the man was putting Jesus to the test. So you can imagine this man assumed he was smarter, more educated than Jesus, and that he should be the one teaching the crowd, not this uneducated fraud from the backwoods of Nazareth. And so the lawyer asked Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now you notice from the very beginning, this man has a performance mindset, right? Uh, When it comes to his religion... Uh, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What hoops must I jump through to be accepted by God? Now, perhaps the man was trying to test Jesus with this question because of the types of people Jesus hung out with. Jesus was known to to hang out with sinners. Uh, Jesus was known to break the Sabbath and other rabbinic traditions. So we can imagine the lawyer was waiting for Jesus to say something incriminating. But Jesus in verse 26, knowing this man was an expert in the law, asks him, how does the law of Moses answer your question? And in verse 27, the lawyer answers by quoting two Old Testament passages. He kind of blends them together. The first is Deuteronomy 6.5. It's a famous passage in the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, etc., etc. But also Leviticus 19, 18, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He effectively summarizes the entire law of Moses with these two ideas. Love God, love your neighbor. Now in verse 28, Jesus affirms his answer and he says, hey, you already knew the answer. You, you go do what you preach. Practice what you preach. Go do that and you'll live. Now this conversation apparently was not going the way the lawyer wanted it to go. He found himself back on his heels here because we're told in verse 29 he wanted to justify himself. Now that's a key point in the story. Highlight that. The lawyer felt the need to justify himself. Now, let's think about what that means. To justify yourself is to make yourself look good. It's to defend yourself, perhaps, explain yourself, make yourself look righteous, make yourself look better, perhaps, than you really are. And we see this idea of self-justification spring up in the Garden of Eden, the very begin, beginning of the Bible, when Adam was confronted by God 
for eating the fruit. God comes to him and say, hey, says, hey, Adam, what'd you do? And Adam, what does he do? He points at Eve. He said, the woman you gave me, God, she gave me the fruit to eat. Self-justification. And then God turns to the woman, and what does she do? The serpent. Self-justification. This was the beginning of all of our need to self-justify. We all have this disease, this need and desire. The theologian D.A. Carson argues that this is a minor theme throughout the Gospel of Luke. I'll give you two examples. The first is from Luke 16. This, here we have a conversation between the Pharisees and Jesus, and we're told that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And then Jesus says to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Jesus is pointing out that the Pharisees used money to make themselves feel better. To make themselves feel superior to others. It was a way to build up their self-esteem. Money was a sign of God's blessing and favor on them. Now a second example is in Luke 18. Another famous parable that Jesus tells here. And we're told at the beginning of verse 9. That Jesus told the parable. Note, note this. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Self-justification. They trusted in themselves and treated others with contempt. And Jesus tells the parable. Two men go up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee and the tax collector both pray. But only at the end, only the tax collector goes home. Justified, not the Pharisee. Why? The key, this is the key to everything, guys. Pay attention. This is the key. The Pharisee sought to justify himself with his actions, with his self-righteousness. He lists in his prayer all the wonderful things he does for God. That he trusts in those things in order to justify himself, in order to elevate his standing before God. But the tax collector simply goes, falls on his knees, and pleads for God's mercy. You see, the tax collector looked for God to justify him. That's all he had. And Jesus gives us the key by saying it's the tax collector who goes home justified. The tax collector has discovered the secret. We can't justify ourselves. Only God can do that. But that's exactly what the lawyer is trying to do here in our story today. He's trying to justify himself by clarifying exactly, Jesus, who is my neighbor? He wants to know how many types of people fit within the category of neighbor so that I know whether or not I'm meeting the standard. So that I know whether or not I'm justified in meeting the expectation. His 
question implies that there's a category of people who are non-neighbors, right? That there are certain types of people God doesn't expect us to love. And this wasn't an unusual question because the definition of neighbor was actually debated in Jesus' day, especially among the religious experts like the lawyer. And many experts of the law believed a neighbor was limited to an Israelite, and a pious one at that, that those were the only neighbors you were required to love. And that's likely the position that the lawyer held. So before answering the man's question, Jesus tells a parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem. Now it's likely the man in the parable lived in Jericho and was going home after traveling up the 3,600 feet, 17-mile trail up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. He's probably going back down home to Jericho. Now, no information is given to us about the man, so it's safe to assume he's an average Israelite. Now, the Jericho road was a rocky desert terrain. I got a slide to give you a sense for what it looks like. Uh, it was known for being a dangerous road. It was common for people to be robbed and killed there. Criminals would hide in caves and crevices. So it was very dangerous. And what happens in the parable happened every day in Jesus' time. And here we have this, a devout Jew who is stripped, beaten, robbed, and left to die. And in verse 31 to 32, Jesus continues the story by introducing a priest and a Levite coming down the road. Now, Levites were kind of like junior priests. So they both pass by the dying man. And decide not to help. Now, we're, we're not told why they decided not to help. It could be that they were afraid of being jumped by the robbers as well. The man was still alive, so it's likely the robbers were still close by. Or it could be they were concerned uh, about their ceremonial purity, that if they were to help the man, the man dies, then they would be unclean and have to go through a ritual to cleanse themselves. Jesus doesn't tell us, though, which means it probably doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is they didn't stop to help. The priest and the Levite represented the ultimate insiders. They represented the religious establishment. They represented the entire system of self-justification. They pass along. They don't help. Then along comes the hero of the story, a Samaritan. Now, this would have shocked Jesus' audience because Samaritans were hated among the religious uh, experts like the lawyer. Samaritans were half-breeds. They were part Jew, part anything else. Uh, they didn't participate in the religious practices in Jerusalem. They weren't allowed to uh, be witnesses in a court of law because they were considered to be liars. They were despised by faithful Jews. Uh, so in order to consider how shocking this was, try to imagine Jesus 
telling this parable and making the hero of the story someone you despise. Now, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Uh, imagine if the hero of the story was President Trump or Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Whichever side of the aisle you come from, imagine that person that you can't stand. Okay? That's the hero. That's the hero. That's the Samaritan. And it's the Samaritan who sees the man and has compassion. Now, notice what was required to help the man in need in verses 34 and 35. First, the helping, uh, the, to help the man was extremely risky. The robbers could have come back. They could have pounced on him. So he was putting his life at risk. Second, it was extremely inconvenient and physically demanding. The Samaritan had things to do. So his whole schedule plans were completely turned upside down. He had to get dirty and bloody uh, when dressing the man's wounds to get the man up on his animal and walk the rest of the distance to get some help. It would have been extremely demanding on him. And third, helping the man was extremely expensive. We're told that he used two denarii, which represented about three weeks' worth of food for one person. Whatever the cost, the Samaritan was willing to pay it. So this is a picture of a compassionate, generous, overflowing heart. This is love in action. And how many of us, how many of us can say we love like this? In verse 36, Jesus answers the lawyer's question with a question. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? But did you notice that Jesus responded with his own question, which Jesus often did, which of the three proved to be a neighbor to the man who was robbed? Do you see how Jesus changed the focus? The lawyer wanted to know, what are the limits of my responsibility? Who is it that I have to help to still be good? What do I need to do to justify myself? That's what the lawyer was thinking. And if Jesus was concerned with answering that question, Jesus would have made the Samaritan, the man who was beaten and robbed and left for dead, and he would have inserted the pious Israelite as the man who helped him, as the hero. That would have certainly been a moral, heartwarming story that all, all of us could have affirmed, that someone of noble rank showing benevolence and honorable conduct a pious Jew stooping down beneath himself to help a man who is not his equal. How inspiring that would have been. But that's not what Jesus did because that wasn't really the question Jesus wanted to answer. Jesus wanted the lawyer to see himself from the perspective of the pious Jew who was in the ditch. 
The lawyer was asking his question from the position of assumed superiority. He assumed he gets to decide who qualifies as a neighbor to be helped. But Jesus wanted the lawyer to consider that he was the man in the ditch. And would he accept help from an impure Samaritan heretic? Will he accept help from a Samaritan? Could a Samaritan be his savior? Could a Samaritan be his helper, his healer? Now it's obvious in verse 37 that the lawyer doesn't like the story. I don't think he's been won over by Jesus because he can barely spit out a response to Jesus' question. He can't even bring himself to use the word Samaritan, can he? He simply says, the one who showed mercy. So you get the feeling that the lawyer doesn't like Jesus' point. He doesn't like viewing himself as the one in need. And that's why, in context, this parable would not be very popular. Because that's what it's saying to each and every one of us. It isn't a heartwarming, feel-good story. Remember, the man was trying to justify himself, and Jesus is showing him that the law is too much for him to bear. He can't do it. If he tries to use the law to justify himself, it's going to leave him in the ditch, beaten, bloodied, and left for dead. And we'll do the same for you. Jesus wants the lawyer to stop trying to justify himself and to see that Jesus himself is the Samaritan. Remember, the Samaritan saw the dying man and had compassion. And what's fascinating is when you look in the Gospels, that Greek word for compassion shows up time and time again. But it's used to describe Jesus as he looks on the crowds and as he looks at individuals. Time and time again, Jesus is described as showing compassion, feeling compassion for those he came to save and Jesus was willing to sacrifice everything for them just like the Samaritan so you see I think the key is to see who you first are supposed to identify with in this parable And the problem is when we jump to the Samaritan. Now, I think Jesus does want us to eventually get there, but we've got to go through the ditch first. And we've got to be rescued before we can be the rescuer. Because when that happens, that transforms you. It strips you of any sense of self-righteousness. It strips you of any sense that you need to feel superior to anyone else because you know, hey, I was desperate and in need and was saved. Now I can go, and whoever it is, whatever it costs, I can be the hands and feet of Jesus. And I imagine if Jesus were to tell a sequel to this parable of the Good Samaritan, it might be called the parable of 
the rescued Israelite. Because I would imagine that if there was a second person left dying on the side of the road, the hero would be the man who was saved by the Samaritan. That that pious Jew who had been rescued would be the one loving his neighbor. Carrying on the ministry of the Samaritan. And that, after all, is the gospel for us. That's the message that we love because we've been loved. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this parable that challenges us. I pray that as we meditate on it and consider what it's trying to teach us, we wouldn't turn an eye away from confronting the reality of our need for you to come and bind our wounds, to heal us, to carry us, to save us. And Lord, as you do that for us, may we see more clearly the needs of others and see the ways that we can love and serve in your name, bringing you glory and honor. May that become a part of who we are as your people as we carry on your ministry here on earth. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.